Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends, and happy end of July or whenever you're listening to this. We are finishing up uh, the month of July, and I decided to pivot a little bit from doing a repost of a previous episode and uh, sharing something I did on a Sunday morning at our church, and I'll tell you about that in just a second, but uh, July's almost up, and so we'll be back to some new interviews that we've got. the, I feel you're going to like the month of August. I feel like you're really going to like it. So uh, I'm not going to tell you who we got coming up. I just don't like to do that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's going to be good. Good month coming up. And um, yeah, this is uh, the end of July. As you guys know, I don't um, I try to, to uh, be as quiet as I can in the month of July. Do more listening than talking. Except for obviously right now when I'm doing this intro. It's a, a time refreshing and uh Listening and growing and learning because, uh, as we all know, recreation often happens when we stop working and we enter into a season of recreation. Recreation, recreation, get that. Um, anyway, so that's what I'm doing the month of July. Uh, August next month, we'll be back with new content. Uh, but today I wanted to share with you a sermon I did. This was from uh, June. A couple weeks ago, and uh, this was, uh, you know, in some ways, as questions about justice and racism were at uh, the forefront of the zeitgeist. Obviously, they're still there right now, but uh, they were just so acutely felt right then that this is a uh, a sermon I'll tell you about actually in the beginning of the sermon itself. But I figured uh, this is a conversation I want to have on the podcast, and we will have some more uh, conversations with upcoming guests about this subject matter. But without further ado, here's a sermon entitled Rage, Race, and Hope. I don't know about you, I don't know where you're at, but I'm a bit exhausted, tired, and as I thought about what we needed to discuss today, I didn't really want to talk about race, I didn't want to talk about what's going on in our country. Uh, Actually, uh, Thursday we were in a a meeting uh, with our worship team trying to put together what service is going to look like. And I wanted to continue with our Distant Country series, uh, but I felt like we needed to step out of that on, on Monday. And so I wrote a sermon about how to understand the pandemic in light of, of God and, and, and our Christian faith. And so I thought, okay, well, we can step out of the Distant Country series to talk about what's going on with the pandemic and kind of give a, a theological perspective on it. And so we're in the meeting Thursday. We're, we're, we're talking through things. And I get a phone call from a brother of mine in Christ. An African-American man who for 30 minutes pours his heart out to me, expresses how angry and hurt he is. He's hurt. And as much as I didn't want to talk about this in a prolonged fashion today, because I didn't want to say the wrong thing, I knew the worst thing would just would be to say no thing, to say nothing about it. And so what we're going to do today is going to look different than a normal service. We're going to have an entire worship time that's kind of broken up. We're going to have uh, some time focused on scripture and teaching, communion and prayer and music. And all that mixed together is going to be our worship this morning. 
So there's not going to be one particular sermon, but it's going to be a bunch of little thoughts that are going to all weave us together towards this direction of where I think God is calling us to go today. And where I think God is calling us to go is to a place that maybe not all of us want to be in. At least I knew I didn't want to be there just a few days ago. When I was in college, I was a junior or senior and became friends with a, a young English professor. Uh, he, he was younger then than I am right now. And he was just finishing up his doctorate. He had his dissertation to finish. And so, of course, befriending this guy, I'm going to ask him a question. What is, what is your dissertation on? And he told me that his dissertation was on black rage. I'd never even heard that phrase as a 19, 20-year-old. And then he started to explain it to me. He explained his experiences to me. And over the next 20 years, I've heard enough stories from enough different people that I couldn't imagine. Uh, stories of black men and black women Experiencing things that I, I've never experienced. I, I've heard stories of friends who were raising both a, a white son and a black son and how they describe an experience that doesn't make sense to me. And at first, when I would hear these stories, my question would be, but did you or could, could you have? And now, almost 20 years later, all I can say is I'm sorry. I'm sorry you were mistreated. And I'm tired. I'm tired of hearing stories of men that I look up to being looked down upon. I'm tired of seeing the anguish on the face of a parent who's concerned for the well-being of their child. I'm tired. And now I get why some six or seven decades ago, James Baldwin said, to be a Negro in this country... And to be somewhat conscientious means to be in a state of rage almost all the time. And I get it, and I get my, my brother this week, and many brothers and sisters across this country are angry this week. In the Bible, God is angry. Jesus is angry. There's scriptures about God's wrath. God's anger, there's accounts of Jesus acting out of those things. And so we can't say to be angry is wrong. Which has been kind of the default that many of us have gone to for, for many years. We've tried to minimize it. I had a friend two years ago go to Memphis for the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. And this guy comes back and he retells to me his experience at the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. And he said when the white speakers would talk and the black speakers would talk, they, they, they sounded different. He said when the white speakers would talk, they were talking about reconciliation and kind of moving forward. And they said, but you know, the, the black speakers, they just sounded angry. And many of us talk like that. Well, they're just angry. My mom always told me that when you did something wrong, not only do you need to apologize to someone, but you need to, to listen to how it made them feel. And we haven't always done that. We haven't always done that. It's a poem by uh, Langston Hughes. 
I want to read it to you this morning. It's entitled I Too. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. But I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table. When company comes, nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am American. Because there are many brothers and sisters of ours in Christ throughout the world, and specifically in America, who still feel like they have to go to the kitchen. We stop, we wait, and we listen. And we say to God, how long? Because America still does not believe that black is beautiful, we stop, and we listen, and we say, how long, O Lord? Our first reading of Scripture this morning is from Psalm 13. If you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? God, this morning, we join in this lament. We join in the lament of the psalmist. And we join in the sorrow and the anger that many have right now. Because of one mistreatment after another. Because of 400 years oppression 400 years of wrongdoing and God we pray how long oh Lord must we wait for you to deliver us from this evil the evil that is inside of us the evil that is above us the evil that is around us God how long must we wait we pray this to you because we trust that you'll hear us. In uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, Jesus tells this story, starting in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. And loses one of them, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus says, so imagine a situation where there 
there are a hundred sheep. And you have this shepherd who looks in his fold and realizes that only 99 are still there. And one of them is out beyond where they're supposed to be. What do you do? If you're a good shepherd, you, you quickly realize that 99 sheep are where they're supposed to be. They're where they're needed to be. They're, they're taken care of in the way that they're, they're supposed to be taken care of. But you got one who's out there being mistreated in the wrong spot. You go after that one. And it's not because the other 99 don't matter. It's because all of them matter. To, to a good shepherd, every sheep matters. And if there happens to be one that's being mistreated because they all matter, you go after the one that is not being treated like it matters. So you leave the 99 for the one. Dr. King told us decades ago that we as a country must never forget that there is no gradation of the image of God. As a nation, we must never forget that there is no gradation of the image of God. There's not a, a, a lot of the image of God in some people and a little bit in others, but everyone matters. And the problem is, not everyone is being treated like the image of God is inside of them equally. Not everyone is in the pen treated the same way. There are some who are outside of the pen who aren't treated the same way. And because there is no gradation of the image of God, everyone matters. So sometimes you've got to leave the 99 for the one. Earlier this week, former President George W. Bush made this statement, and I'm going to read it, uh, just a section of it to you. President Bush said this. It remains a shocking failure that many African Americans, especially young African American men, are harassed and threatened in their own country. It is a strength when protesters, protected by responsible law enforcement, march for a better future. This tragedy, in a long series of similar tragedies, raises a long overdue question. How do we end systemic racism in our society? The only way to see ourselves in a true light is to listen to the voices of so many who are hurting and grieving. Many doubt the justice of our country and with good reason. Black people see the repeated violation of their rights without an urgent and adequate response from American institutions. We know that lasting justice will only come by peaceful means. Looting is not liberation and destruction is not progress. But we also know that lasting peace in our communities requires truly equal justice. He's saying, you look out at our country and you realize that there are some sheep who are outside of the pen of justice. And what we have to do as a country is fix that. Now, as people of faith, our calling is to follow the heart of God. 
Which is why in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. To say that you are a child of God in this situation is a Jewish way of saying that you are like your heavenly Father. Jesus, when you are a peacemaker, when you bring shalom and wholeness to the world, when you make sure everyone receives the love of God in a fair and equal way, and they are treated as those created in the image of God as they rightfully deserve, then you will be called a child of God. Because you're acting like the God. The same God who is a good shepherd and who would leave 99 for the one, when you act that way, you become like God. And we gather for worship to remember who God is. Because if you know who God is, then you remember who you're supposed to be. May we remember that. Let's pray again. God, we know your heart is for all people. And your love is true and faithful for each and every one of us. And because we know what your heart is like, and, we because, and because we know that you are the good shepherd who brings life to everyone and life abundantly, may we be committed to ensuring that everyone experiences that love. So our prayer for, you, for us, our prayer to you, is that you would be around us, that we would know who you are, and so we can know who we are supposed to be. We pray this in your name. A pretty challenging week uh, for us across the country. Uh, it's been challenging, but there have been moments when you see some amazingly beautiful pictures of how things are supposed to be. You might have seen some of these uh, online. Let me show you a couple of these. Uh, here's back, the first one from news, Fort Worth, Texas. News at 10 o'clock. I spoke earlier of a moment that we had witnessed from the chopper tonight in Fort Worth. And now we get this video and I want to share with you. Fort Worth police officers taking a knee to be with the protesters tonight after protesters asked. And then hugs all around between the police department and those protesters and the death of George Floyd. A nice moment to see in such a horrible stretch of time that we have had. Back in a moment. So to see this beautiful picture of protesters asking law enforcement officers to take a knee and these, uh, these uh, law enforcement officers in this act of vulnerability take a knee and you have this beautiful moment together. Uh, here's another clip. This is from uh, Nebraska. Uh, take a look at this. Like this, just continue to pop up. To so what you see here is, uh, you as see well. this, protesters, you see police, and judging by the fact that they're all dancing in unison on beat, that there are no Church of Christ people there. But you have this beautiful celebration, protesters and law enforcement officers together. I'm going to show you one more clip. This is from uh, the Flint, Michigan area. This is the sheriff uh, talking to a group of protesters in uh, Michigan. So listen, I'm just telling you, these cops love you. That cop over there hugs people, so you tell us what you need to do. 
See this beautiful picture, the sheriff asking, what do, you, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? Protesters say, march with us. So he joins, he leads this procession. He says, let's turn this into a party. So we've seen these beautiful moments, but there's also been some really ugly stuff. We've seen looting. Uh, we've seen uh, people hurt. We've seen uh, buildings, businesses destroyed, damaged, stolen from. It's terrible to see that. Because obviously it, it, it's stuff, but it's, it's more than stuff. It's people's livelihood. So we hate to see that. But one of the things it seems that most people have, have come to understand is that there has been peaceful protesters who match up the majority of what we've seen. And then you have this other group of people who are doing the looting and the other destructive behavior. And so most people kind of understand there's peaceful protesters and then there's looting, which is clearly a bad thing. But what I want to talk about now is the way people understand who those people are who are doing the looting. You have different terms for who these people are and different ways that people are going about identifying those bad actors that we've seen this week. And the way that we've answered who those people are has been so easily been in line with our political vision for our country. It's almost like we, we just have this mindset of who we want the bad actors to be, and then we just said it. Uh, here's a piece from a website called The Ringer talking about this phenomenon. He says, but what was striking about the narratives that now began to emerge was how many different types of outside agitators there seemed to be. How varied their motives were and how little direct evidence there was to support any of the claims that were being widely made about them. A chunk of liberal Twitter instantly adjusted to a world in which all the looting had been carried out by covert white supremacists. A good chunk of conservative Twitter knew it, in its bones that the culprits were Antifa activists. Now, who it actually was, I don't know. I'm not pretending to know the answer to that. But what I do know is the way that we've come to answer that question is what we've done over and over again in our country. We don't need evidence to support the views that we already have about those people and us. And so we just fill in any narrative that substantiates the worldview that we already have. We've seen this with COVID-19. Where we've quickly just taken on a worldview that in which our political perspective on our world and how our country needs to move forward. And everyone who's against that is the enemy and the villain. We just jump into that. Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And if there's any pattern in our world, it's that. It's a sort of binary us versus them mentality. And part of the reason I was reticent to want to talk about this today is because I know some of you are already judging. Well, Luke said this, and he had George W. Bush, and he talked about this. So does that mean he's this group or that group? Is he for us or against us? That's the pattern of this world. We are being conformed to this sort of us versus them mentality that our partisan political world has created for us. And we've just gone right along with it. Are you for this group? Are you for that group? And if there's any light in this dark time that Christianity can be, is a different perspective on who's the right side and who's the enemy. 
Here's a text that Paul writes in Ephesians. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Paul says whoever the bad guy is, it's not flesh and blood. We are working against the powers and principalities that work against our world. The powers and the principalities that conform us to being divided. And we thoughtlessly go along with the process. And so you're either for this group or you're for that group. And Paul says that this, that's not how Christians see this. Christians understand the battle is never against another person. It is always against the powers and principalities of this day and age. The dark forces that are at work in this world. And so what we do every week when we gather is we try to remind each other that our ultimate allegiance is not with the political party that we affiliate with. Our ultimate allegiance is with the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is for love, for the sanctity of life, it's for justice, it is where hope is found, and no political party can pretend like they own one of those things or the other. And as much as the political world that tries to conform us to their thinking would try to make us believe that, we remember that this is not what we're about. That we have an allegiance that's higher and grander than being a Republican or a Democrat. Our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And because of that, we don't see other people as the enemy. It is never against flesh and blood. And so when it comes to a conversation on race, we do not see whatever group that we see standing in the way of justice and love and equality as the real enemy. But we believe the powers and principalities are dividing us. That doesn't mean we don't need to fix unjust systems. But it means that we do not vilify other people. Because we believe that ultimately what is what has happened is this is light and dark. The powers of God and the powers of redemption at work in a world that has sin. And so we don't see other people as a villain. But instead, we remember our ultimate allegiance is the kingdom of God. And what we're all working against are the anti-God forces that pull us apart, that create racism, that create fear, that create hatred. And so when we gather to worship, we remember there's something deeper than that. And that is the blood of Jesus and the body that was broken. Now, I know there's uh, a lot of us, especially us, uh, white people who over the last few days and weeks have uh, had a, a new sense of commitment to bringing light and bringing hope and bringing reconciliation. And so let me say just a couple things, uh, specifically one thing. Uh, white people, it is not black people's job to educate you on race and injustice. Uh, white people, it is not black people's job to explain to you how things work and what you should do different. You need to educate yourself, okay? So you need to read some books, listen to some podcasts, educate yourself because it is not black people's responsibility to educate you on all the injustice that has happened in our world. It is your, it's your responsibility. It's our responsibility. It's my responsibility. 
We have responsibilities. Now, last week I didn't say much about looting or how wrong it was for, for that to happen. And I want to explain that. Obviously, it is bad. To, to steal is wrong, obviously. But the reason I didn't say anything about it last week is because I don't know of any sermon that's ever told people that stealing isn't wrong. And I've never heard a church tell people who've had their stuff stolen from them that it's God's will for this to happen to you and for you to be a good person just to let people steal from you. Never heard that. But what I have heard a whole lot about is a lot of churches and a lot of sermons over the last 400 years saying slavery is okay. That segregation is God's will. And that oppression is just how God ordains things. I've read in that three decades before I got to Harding University's campus, the president, as he was explaining why they were going to continue to be a segregated school and not let black people enroll, that he told the student body in this glib sort of fashion, and I quote, Blackbirds and bluebirds, blue jays and mockingbirds, they don't mix and mingle together young people. That was said in a Church of Christ school three decades before I attended. And so I think we have a unique responsibility to fix things that have been broken by white people. We have a responsibility. My good friend, uh, Fade Haygood, in Los Angeles, was telling me earlier this week that he's obviously against looting, partly because he sees the effect of it, the, the after effects of it. Uh, he's lived in Los Angeles long enough to have lived through uh, the Watts riots in 65, to live through the, the Rodney King riots of uh, 95, excuse me, 92. And he's seen how South Central Los Angeles was like a deserted town for 15 years after the riots. And how it took so long for the community to rebuild what was torn apart. So he's seen the after effects. So obviously he's against it. Of course, it's wrong. And that was a fitting picture of living in the after effects of churches that have perpetuated slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, and all sorts of oppression. Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We, we have failed that. We have destroyed the unity of the Spirit. So we have a responsibility. White people, I'm talking to us as a predominantly white church, we have a responsibility to address these things. And it's been far too easy for us to regress into, well, I, I've got a black friend... Instead of saying, I'm about ending racism. It is far too easy for us to say, I'm not racist. Instead of saying, I'm actively against racism. When last time I checked, the church has always been, a, been called. And the church has always had a calling to overcome these things. Jesus says this to, to uh, uh, Peter in Matthew 16. 
He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, which literally is rock in Greek. You are rocky, Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, I've never been in the military, but I'm fairly certain that gates are a defensive mechanism. That you set up a gate when someone is trying to charge you. And so what Jesus is saying is that the church has always been charged with charging after the gates of Hades. It's not content to just sit back and go, well, you know, we're not doing the wrong things. Well, I'm not doing the wrong things. But the church has always been called to go after and confront the gates of hell. We have a responsibility to not just be not racist, to not just have a black friend, but to be a friend of the cause of ending racism. We've got to do this. So there's a couple things that you're going to see that we have been doing and we're going to continue to do in greater ways going forward. One thing you're going to see for us as a church is we're going to continue to talk about this stuff. When, when we see racism present in our country, we're not going to be silent. Because I've had too many friends tell me that when they go to a predominantly white church, and after an incident, and the church is silent, it makes them feel like they don't matter. That their experience is invalid. But we as a church, we're going to talk about this because we care about this. And we care about the experience of black men and women and people of color who feel anger and rage and hurt and they feel like they're pushed down. We care and we're going to continue to talk about it because you, you matter to us and your cause and your feelings and your experience, they are not invisible to us. We're going to continue to talk about it. We're going to be intentional as best we can to listen to black experiences. One of the things over the last few years you might have noticed is that I've been very intentional of having speakers come in, people of color who can preach and teach and share their story, whether it's um, Faye Haygood or Sonia Richard-Ross or Stephen Mackey. We've had these guest speakers come in because they're talented and called by God to share their gifts, but also because they can share experiences that are different than my experience. In July, I already had two uh, black men scheduled to come preach. Now, obviously, with travel and COVID, I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but that is something that is a priority to us. Uh, third, you're going to, uh, when, whenever we are able to do growth groups again in person, uh, we're going to have more conversations about what it means for us to be gospel people in a world that is divided by racism and that there is oppression? What does it mean for us to live out the gospel in these situations? And so whenever growth groups come back together, we're going to talk about this stuff because these things matter to us. And the kind of church that we want to be is a church that reflects the diversity of the kingdom of God, which means we reflect the cares and the concerns of those around us. And they become our concerns. Now, in closing, I know everyone has had different experiences and feelings about what's going on. For some, the feeling is pessimism. Because they go, well, this is just the same song, different verse. And so there's pessimism for some. I know some are optimistic because they see young people caring about this in a way that maybe young people in previous generations didn't. And there's optimism. 
But as people of faith, we're not tied to optimism or pessimism. We are tied to hope. And our hope is not in a political party. It's not to one generation or the next generation. Our hope is tied to the one who began a good work in us, in our world, and who will carry it on into completion. And so whether you're naturally optimistic or you're naturally pessimistic, those are secondary to hope. Brian Stevenson said that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. As people of faith, we cling to hope. Hope in the God who is about redeeming all things and reconciling all things and bringing all things into the Lordship of Jesus. And that will give everyone a reason to bow their knee. It will give everyone a reason to, to dance and celebrate. It will give a reason for everyone to join together in this procession the good news of Jesus. And so let's celebrate that hope now. Let's pray. God, we cling to hope when optimism or pessimism might seem like the natural options for us. We need to be rooted in the redemption of Jesus. And we believe that you will bring your just order to this world. That eventually it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so we believe and we hope that that will sustain us. And that we lean into that hope to get us through. So we celebrate this. For those of us who are not ready to celebrate, for those of us who are still in lament, God, we thank you that you are a God who is okay with that. That you are a God who is willing to sit and be still as we lament. And for those of us who need to celebrate to get us through, I thank you for being a God who gives us that as well. We praise in the name of Jesus.